and it, I, I, I felt like a weight had been lifted because you do feel like it's only your child. Looking after a young child is hard enough, but when that child has learning difficulties and might display some challenging behaviour, the burden on parents can be pretty extreme. That behaviour might prompt a visit to a doctor. And in this podcast, we're talking about how parents can be supported in that, what services are available. We'll also be discussing what's normal behaviour and what might prompt a referral to a specialist team for further assessment. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by two of the authors of a recent practice pointer, Managing Challenging Behaviour in Children with Possible Learning Disability. Those authors are Angela Hasiotis, Professor of Psychiatry of Intellectual Disability at University College London. Hello, Angela. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting us to do this podcast. We're also joined by Michael Absud, Consultant in Paediatric Neurodisability at the Evelina Children's Hospital in London. Hi, Michael. Hi there. Thanks. It's great to be here. We're also joined on Skype by Rebecca the mother of a child who displayed some of these challenging behaviours and is actually also a parent, carer, caseworker, supporting families of children with disabilities. Rebecca, thanks for taking some time to talk to us. It's a pleasure. Rebecca, let's start with you. Uh, this is something that, that you've, you've experienced, you've lived and breathed. Um, how did it start you? What was the point that you started to think, oh, maybe something is going on here? Um, we just literally, our lives just started being controlled by a three-year-old. Um, where we could go, what we could do, if she would, it, you know, it really depended on what, what mood she was in, if she would put her shoes on. And when we actually couldn't get in the car to go to the shop, it was just like there's more to this and then one day she was invited to her friends and she decided she wasn't leaving and after an hour of chasing her around the street after I'd carried her out of the house kicking and screaming and clawing at me it just I just thought I can't do this on my own anymore so yeah we literally spent an hour with either baby in a pram and she was just running into gardens and hiding just because she didn't want to leave her friend's house it so. sounds incredibly stressful. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, beyond stressful, to be honest with you, because lots of little things have been happening because she'd gone from a very placid child to um, vi- violent meltdowns, um, more than tamp- temper tantrums, because even what she wanted, if you gave her it, it didn't stop. What The, the, actual, the actual meltdown, it didn't stop. Um, so it wasn't even if I gave in to her, it would work nothing was working so and it was just it got to the point where it was affecting our relationship it, um and then she went for my youngest child and I just thought I've got to get help um and turning to you Michael and Angela is that the kind of story that you hear a lot yes we would say very typical and often um parents will go to their general practitioner or the uh, primary care practitioner um sometimes that's a health visitor although in the uk services in health visiting particularly home visits which were helpful are becoming more scarce so yes um a very 
very typical presenting um, uh, story and it's important to uh, validate and listen to the parents' concerns when they when they come uh, w- uh, with, with that story. I mean, obviously, all children display difficult behaviour at some time, but how many children are we talking about that display that kind of extreme of, of um, behavioural problems? Well, um, it actually, this is something that's quite difficult to quantify, but based on a number of different sources from uh, data from schools and uh, what we know about the prevalence of challenging behaviours and so on, um, we would say, um, as it's in the article, about 40,000 children with any degree of uh, challenging behaviour. So um, I think uh, Rebecca's story is probably on the more extreme end of the spectrum, but it depends actually whether, you know, the behavior could be very frequent, although it might be, say, moderate, or it could be really, you know, as extreme and you don't actually need it to be very frequent, but if it happens, then it creates considerable distress, uh, upset in the family um, and um, can be difficult to uh, control and then you really know that you need to do something so you decided to seek help um Mm -hmm. yeah what did you do did you go to your gp where did you start um i initially um spoke to my gp who told me um on a telephone consultation that sent health visitor around for a visit um and she came out and obviously i had a long chat with her about the difficulties i was having with gabrielle um and then um she um suggested that a primary mental health worker came to meet us which who did um but unfortunately both the health visit and the primary mental health worker had felt that because of the fact that i'd made a list of my daughter's difficulties i was negative um and therefore she didn't actually have any problems it was just my negativity on her behaviors that were inc- making them increase um, so, uh, but the primary mental health workers in my area don't actually meet the children, they only meet the parents. So, um, they kind of said, you know, you need to, she'll be fine, she's, you just enjoy the fact that you've got a strong willed three year old girl. Um, so, after a few months, I really couldn't cope and went back to the GP with, and I, this time I took my daughter and um, made a double appointment. So, uh, we were in there a considerable time. And by the end of the appointment, the GP was like, oh, yes, you need more help. Um, and sent a different primary mental health worker out. And, and they, um, again, didn't meet her. And they only went by what I said. And he decided, he diagnosed her with emotional rage disorder, which wasn't the most useful. And then uh, after six months of me just crying and not, I wasn't being able to, I wasn't being able to work because no, the two childminders had said they couldn't cope with her I went back to the doctors um, and I ended up being put on a course um, about how to talk to children but it actually took five years before I got to the people that I needed to and it's obviously very affecting for you I mean maybe Michael if I turn to you at this point um, if we sort of take uh, the beginning of what Rebecca said there. The doctor initially thought that, uh, or the health worker initially thought that this was normal behaviour that Rebecca had, was thinking about in a negative way. Um, 
Maybe we could start by saying, you know, in children, what is normal behaviour and how do you start sort of untangling a little bit and and perhaps working out what what is um, problem behaviour? Yes, absolutely. Um, and obviously, in an initial consultation, there may be limited time. Uh, so, so one would really just to emphasize the point that Rebecca and I and I mentioned earlier is the importance of validation uh, listening um, because sometimes parents aren't aware there may be an underlying developmental problem which needs to be considered in the differential and if that's the case one should show empathy and explore that but back to your initial question it's about thinking um, and understanding that there is a range of normal behavior and that behavior may be a form of communication um, the young person is communicating um, uh, something with with the aspect of that behavior um, and in our in our paper we um, in one of the initial boxes we have the early learning goals in preschool children and we cover the basics uh, in terms of the domains one should briefly ask about which are in the domains of communication physical development and social emotional development um, and uh, um, gives a brief list of the things one should expect um, and then um, one should briefly ask about um, uh, the the what is happening around the behaviors uh, and as Andrea pointed out how frequent uh, and how severe they are and exactly what they are um, it is it's also important to consider um, who else might be involved so not infrequently another professional may be involved so for the GP one might ask, is there a speech and language therapist involved? Um, it may not just be the health visitor, so a child presenting with language delay may already have access to a speech and language therapist. Um, and um, finding out uh, who is involved is important so that coordinated care and communication could um, happen uh, across, across the team, around the, uh, around the family. Um, I just wanted to also add, and I think um, that's uh, quite important uh, coming out of Rebecca's, um, you know, example um, uh, as well, that um, at the point where you really need to go and ask for help and it seems to be affecting the rest of the family, I think you have already crossed the point where you really need to say, um, we we have to do something. We really need to understand why this is happening. So it may well be, and again, sort of taking Michael's points about, you know, um, what's the child's communication, for example? Is there some sort of underlying problem? Um, some of the things such as, uh, for instance, um, autism or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and so on, you know, will make themselves known at a fairly early stage. Um, and then it is uh, obviously the sort of professional's task to see what's happening and try to find out why the problem is um, arising. And I understand from what Rebecca is saying that somehow things also seem to have happened, whereas the child seemed to be fine. And then something happened that was actually quite different from a previous baseline. And again, that gives us um, a kind of idea that we really need to be investigating it could have been potentially some sort of physical problem you know that it's it hasn't been recognized and it needs to be recognized and sometimes actually even physical problems won't make themselves known 
immediately and you do need to kind of run some investigations and so on to to find out so actually having a low threshold of thinking about those other issues is important um and if it is a matter of temperament and so on and of course those are you know kind of emotional disorders and they can happen and they can happen to lots of children um but as long as we can understand the um the reasons behind them you know what behind what the presenting complaint is and then do something about it. But I think we should avoid at all costs. Um, And I'm not suggesting, because I think that's quite an important point as well, that Rebecca felt that somehow she was put, put into a box that said, you're negative. Now, it may well be that that was not what the professional was thinking, as it were, or that's not necessarily the message that was conveyed. But it is Rebecca's perception that it was. And I think that also makes it sort of more difficult for then not to either blame yourself or to think, you know, I'm failing and I can't do anything about it. And then you get into some sort of circle um, or cycle rather, you know, to um, and, and it may be then the problem becomes more entrenched and more difficult because then um, it's actually um it is that there is some work that suggests that if your first crisis when you present the services is dealt with in a way that makes you feel um, probably not being heard or that it's not smooth and there are lots of problems and so on then you become kind of more untrusting for things that may happen in the future even with the best of intentions from everybody to help and support etc and then you also have to consider that as part of the sort of professional work that needs to happen to repair some um, unfortunate situations that uh, may have, uh, you know, parents may have come across at the beginning. Of course, then. So to summarise, it's about listening properly, <laughs> taking account of what's happening, not just to the child, but the, the whole family and, and how the behaviour is affecting that. Uh, and, and trying to be as supportive as possible um, to the parent. Now, Michael, you mentioned there that um, there's a box in the paper with early learning goals in preschool children. I just wanted to go a little bit more into that because they're, you know, they're quite broad, the the things that are in there. Um, And they they obviously, as you say, cover a range of domains. So how would you actually use that? How would you kind of, you know, transpose what's there into, into your kind of practice yeah so again um it would be thinking about those three domains that we've said communication physical development and that includes self-care skills such as feeding so often one of the uh, behaviors that challenge that present to families um that could be a sign of an underlying difficulty is uh, my child has feeding difficulties and the main concern there obviously is a nutritional deficiency if the child's not eating a range or not uh, being able to feed themselves for example um and again thinking about social and emotional development the third domain a very powerful question um to ask in a short consultation by a gp or or a primary care practitioner or primary pediatrician is asking the parent uh, what's their view in these three domains of their child's um developmental age and functioning Um, It may be relative to a previous experience, another sibling they've had, or to other peers. For example, if they take their child to a playgroup or nursery, um, parents often have a very good 
estimate, and that's been shown in, in a couple of papers that we've referenced, uh, of their um, view of the child's functioning in those three domains. And that could give an indication of um, where, where the difficulties um, may lie. And then it's um, just briefly exploring the nature of these behaviours. Um, when did they occur? How often they're occurring? What are they? Uh, what's happening before? What are the consequences, etc.? Um, and then finally, as Angela pointed out, it's important to consider in a child where you suspect intellectual disability or they may already have a diagnosis of an intellectual developmental disorder, intellectual disability, whether there may be an underlying physical problem. Um, so it may be something simple as um, um, bowels, constipation problems, which are quite common, dental issues, um, it may, there may be kind of dental caries, ear, nose and throat problems. So just to remember a systematic approach to physical health problems, particularly if there's been a change um, and uh, w um, because one doesn't want to miss physical health conditions that are presenting in children who are vulnerable and may not be able to um, have difficulty with communication. Mm -hmm. um, so Rebecca, if I can come back to you now. So you said that then eventually after spending that double appointment with the GP, um, you were uh, referred to some parenting classes. Is that right? Could you just explain, you know, what went on there? The parenting classes were a bit, it was actually something called Dinosaur School that came from America originally. Um, that the council had got funding for. And what happened was the children went in one room and the parents went in another and it was at the end of it we got a nice certificate to say we could talk to children properly um which was actually slightly patronizing i'm a qualified nursery teacher so i kind of knew what i was doing in that respect and they just told us about it went over things like they should only sit if they they should sit on the naughty step for a minute of every year of their age if you've got a reward chart there should only be one thing on it not more than you know you shouldn't have two things that they should be doing and in one day and just general sort of things like that. Um, and then at the end of that course, they sit you down and they tell you what they think's actually going on with your child and with you. So for me, that was quite detrimental, but I also was willing to just keep doing anything. So I would, I went on lots of different courses with Gabrielle. I went on another one about um, just like, just we did some play therapy. Um, we had, a mental health work come to house to um, work on me playing imaginatively with her because she had no imaginative play so I just kept taking anything and everything that was offered to me in the hope that they could help me understand her better um, and that did help but it didn't obviously stop everything else that was going on with her so and then from there we went on to do um, eight weeks intense work with two occupational therapists who felt she needed putting forward for a more formal diagnosis. So, but it was a long process, <laughs> a long, long process. It sounds like it, yes. Um, now, as uh, Rebecca said, that that is a long process. It's, it took a long time for her to then um, access things in secondary care and, and go for a formal diagnosis. Uh, is that typical? Is that often the case for, for parents? I think um, groups would be probably the sort of intervention that would be offered most frequently and um, uh, could be provided by potentially the majority of services. 
And obviously, all of those groups are based on the fact that you're going there with other people who have, or other families who have similar problems to yours and kind of learning the group as well as learning some of the kind of underpinning theories, I suppose, that uh, may um, have precipitated the presentation of the problem. The, the issue is that uh, families have found that if your child has particular kind of difficulties, may you may not fit into a particular group. So where there is a potential developmental delay that creates problems for uh, some parents, um, th there is actually sort of almost half perhaps might fail. So it's not it, as, as programs as it were in the sense that these behavior techniques may not really lead to a resolution. So there is um, an element there of, um, you know, what happens to those children then. So Rebecca felt that the classes that she was given were not particularly useful. But um, as you said, Rebecca, you were a, a trained primary care nurse. So you've already learned some of these techniques. I just... I just think that initial course wasn't useful. Some of the other ones that I went on were fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And although I was in a room with parents and we all had different things going on, it, I came out of there and I didn't feel alone anymore. So it did work and I didn't feel on my own. And that in that itself, I did 100% benefit. Um, and it, I, I, I felt like a weight had been lifted because you do feel... Like it's only your child, especially, you know, when you're in the park and your child is displaying these behaviours and everybody's looking at you and hmm, behind your back. So being in that room with that like minded group of parents, that it was it it was uplifting and it did help. Um, I think Rebecca is actually making an important point. Parental mental health, as it were, which is really very important because we often find that the um, once the problems in the child start, um, the families become or tend to become more isolated and so on because, you know, you go to birthday, for example, and the, your child doesn't leave and you've got sort of what a lot of parents call meltdowns and things like that. So, you know, this, these are the kind of things that we need to be thinking. Sure. Um, at all times. Great. Um, now, Rebecca, you said there that uh, you, at this point, your daughter was referred um, on for further assessment. Um, how did that process go? Um, well, initially, I after after I'd done my first course, it wasn't very didn't work very well for me. Um, I was told there wasn't a lot more at that point, and I stamped my foot as an, and and said, "You're not discharging me, and I need more help." And then um, we that's when we entered CAMS and we had um, lots of different types of input um, and we just didn't go away. <laughs> Basically, we, I'm just I wasn't going away because I knew there was more to it than what was going on. Um, and um, we continued. And it, like I say, it was it resulted in eventually some um amazing play therapy by our occupation by the occupational therapist at cams and they although they couldn't work with her any further because she'd had everything she could have they recognized actually she needed to be going for further assessment for a diagnosis of um, her conditions um and you know that was quite i'm not saying it was a positive experience um it was a, it was a long it was a long road we was on a long road and i did feel like we had to fight for people to listen to us as parents, um, constantly, and that 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 was the battle, constant just getting these people to listen to us because 
trust me, if a mum is asking for help, she needs help because it doesn't come lightly for us to say I can't actually manage to look after my child. And that was that was kind of it. Couldn't look after her anymore. My in-laws wouldn't look after her. My husband couldn't cope. Our marriage was breaking down. My other children were avoiding her. We couldn't have a family day out. So once we got into, you know, once we started getting help, it just, it just, it lifts a weight off your shoulder. If you think people are listening to you and they're trying anything to help you, you will take it because it just makes that difference to you. And that's the thing. You just need to know somebody's listening um because as i said before you know all both mine and my husband's mental health was at an all-time low i ended up work ended up off work for six months um just and I'd, i you know just because i just couldn't cope anymore i couldn't go anywhere i couldn't even go to friends house for a cup of tea because she'd have done something or and it was just people didn't want didn't want to come to our house if she was there and it i just needed that help of course and um after you were referred to CAMS and, and you had a, a formal assessment, did you mm-hmm. get a diagnosis for your daughter? We did, yes. Um, she was diagnosed with autism and she's also diagnosed with ADHD um, and attachment disorder due to the early breakdown of her relationship with her dad when she was two. And um, they did su- suggest that she has quite strong demand avoidance as well. <laughs> and did you find that having a label, having that diagnosis, do you find that useful? Um, initially, I was completely anti-label and maybe that didn't help my case. Uh, yes, it has, um, because we understand her now. Other people understand her. And once we had that diagnosis, um, we we learned her, her quirks, really, what works for her, what doesn't work for her. And we managed to get her in the right educational placement where she wasn't in the right educational placement before. And that was adding to the, you know, that was adding to her, to her being, not being able to cope with daily life. So, which was adding to the way she behaved, which obviously impacted the whole family. So, but without that diagnosis, obviously we might not have got some of the support that we got. But I will also say that actually a lot of people believe that a diagnosis is the end result and it worked because of us, but it does also then once you've got a diagnosis, you've kind of that's it now. That's the reason they behave like they do. So, yeah, but yeah, it's that that was, a, you know, the that was the biggest issue for us that um, once we had a formal diagnosis and the reason for the behaviour, you kind of just left with little or no formal support. So, but it it's helped us hugely in education. So I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you. There's a few themes there, if you don't mind me picking of course, up just on. Go. Um, 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 the um, the important point is about advocacy. So one of the important roles of a GP or primary care worker is advocating on behalf of the family. So the that's the parents and the children and the siblings as well, uh, and understanding uh, the role of other services. So for example, uh, in the UK here we have. Um, early help services, which include mental health and uh, some clinical psychology support and also from other agencies such as social care. To 
terms of thinking about supporting the whole family and the capacity to meet uh, their children's uh, social and emotional needs. Uh, um, the other agency which Rebecca mentioned, which is really important, is education. Um, so linking in with nursery or the preschool or the school and asking the staff there about how they can support the families. Um, and also, for example, asking uh, the education service to ask an education psychologist uh, to look at the child at school or preschool because that's where they spend uh, uh, the majority of their days, how they're behaving there, how they can support the family and how they can advocate for further assessments and managements by working with the families and informing the GPs and primary care workers of uh, every step of the uh, process so that they can advocate on, on their behalf. Uh, so very important themes there for uh, Rebecca's raised. Yeah, can I just raise that actually, yes, our educational psychologist, when she got involved once with diagnosis, it changed so much because she was obviously in the classroom and she was watching things and she was noticing things that even I, as a mum, because I'm with her every single day, didn't pick up. And she fed that back to us and we could change things in life, just sensory things and little things about positioning. And that, again, helped her behaviours because it was, you know, she was there with her, but without, you know, so that, you know, all these people involved did really help. Now, Rebecca then mentioned that some people find a diagnosis useful, some people don't, and maybe it, I just wonder, yeah, do you have any, how do you feel about putting uh, a diagnosis and a label on on these kind of broad behaviours? Um, I I think both of us perhaps have our kind of opinions about this. Um, what I would say is that um, diagnosis, and again taking um, Rebecca's point here about uh, not being an um, means to an end or being the kind of end point, because obviously you've got a diagnosis and you need to do other things mm. after that. But also the diagnosis of, say, autism or ADHD. I mean, we know these days a lot more than what we used to know. I trained thinking that, uh, or being told rather, that the core symptoms of autism, for example, will never change. Nevertheless, now there is uh, some research, and actually from uh, some of our colleagues who work in a trial that we're doing at the moment for um, the Stepping Stones Triple P, that actually autism um, or some of the core symptoms, particularly around social interaction and so on, can perhaps be amenable to some change. So, you know, the interventions are being developed to address some of the problems that we see in um, developmental disorders. Um, yeah, regarding diagnosis, um, even if it's suspected and the child um, and the parent, um, the parent has concerns that there may be an underlying diagnosis, if it's suspected by the GP or another um, health worker or education social care worker, that needs to be delivered quite sensitively because even though the parent may suspect it, one has to kind of... Um, gently broach that issue um, and do the appropriate referrals in partnership with the parents because they may not be quite ready for it. Um, however, uh, it's important um, to think about neurodevelopmental diagnoses and although there are excellent nice guidelines, most recently on ADHD as Angela mentioned on challenging behaviour and intellectual disability which yeah. Angela um, sat on um, um, and also autism um, assessment and management uh, one has to think more broadly in terms of the neurodevelopmental strengths and weaknesses 
So, for example, some young people may have some um, um, difficulties, but may not meet thresholds for a particular diagnosis. And that does not mean that the family and the young person and education needs support uh, to manage their relative weaknesses, but also understand their strengths. Um, so diagnosis is important, but as Andrew said, is not the be-all and end-all. It's describing the strengths and weaknesses and how one supports that. And I just want to add in terms of um, um, thinking about um, um, the, the, the context across education and home and the family and what Rebecca has mentioned about the socioeconomic costs. Uh, they can be really quite significant uh, and one often thinks about socioeconomic costs when an adult has a physical disability but these hidden disabilities um, which may not be apparent just by looking at the child uh, can have a huge socioeconomic impact and I'm glad that uh, um, you know uh, research funding into uh, umbrella diagnosis such as in intellectual disabilities are gaining um, uh, are gaining uh, traction and I hope that that continues. Great, thank you. Um, Rebecca, you uh, you said there that things were beginning to get better when your daughter started. Um, how are things now? How, uh, after her diagnosis, how are you coping and, and have things changed significantly for you? Um, I'm not going to say that every day is easy because it's not. But we understand we understand our behaviours now. We know it's not us, and yeah, I just things 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 are good. And we've got we can explain to people now. And I think with the diagnosis, people are more accepting of her behaviours. Um, you know, we still obviously have the issues that we will always have with her, and that that's not going to go away. But we we can work with her as well and help her understand how to manage her emotions and why she feels the way she does and what to do. So as a family, we've learned to adapt and how we manage things so that her brother and sister don't miss out as much. Um, so we do unfortunately have to do things separately, but we we now can do things together for short periods of time that we can all enjoy. So whereas we literally couldn't leave the house together as a family. We couldn't go out for tea. This is such a good message in many respects because it kind of recognises the chronic nature, I suppose, of, you know, the, the difficulties, but also how you can find adaptations and ways in which you can be inclusive, even within a family life, for example, how you might sort of compromise certain things, but then you kind of gain this sense of, um, you know, increased well-being, as it were, as a, um, you know, sort of managing and seeing the child to, um, uh, you know, pulling through and doing better. So that really is very important. I suppose, to a certain extent, I think, you know, th that was a description of what we would call the sort of early intervention. So it's not necessarily that everything is going to go away. I mean, autism is a disorder that will stay with the individual. But um, within that, sort of doing all the work, um, you know, the kind of multiple courses, you know, some of them better than others or more um, relevant than others, getting the diagnosis, etc., kind of leads you to the point where, you know, you've got, um, for example, the sort of parents being able to be at work, the family, you know, the siblings not to miss out and the, the child sort of having better uh, kind of individual outcomes, quality of life and so on. So... 
Um, this is actually such a <laughs> really uh, good kind of summary of what you hope to to achieve by by doing all of this work. Mm. And I'm and like also, may I just say as well that the other thing is about the sense of the parents of. Um, you know, capacity to do this work and mastery to an extent, you know, that it's uh, not as um, kind of helpless situation as it was at the beginning. So actually, these are sort of outcomes that perhaps, you know, it's not as challenging behavior is there, isn't there, but it's actually all these kind of other things that mm. in fact um, also get better. It's great, obviously, <laughs> that um, Rebecca's uh, seen that. Is that usually the story? How likely um, is it that that the interventions that we can offer will help a, a family like that? Well, we are doing um, well. First of all, to say, and um, you know, Michael kind of mentioned that there is a guideline for challenging behaviour in learning disability, which is across the lifespan. So, mm. it. To, talks about uh, sort of research in children as well as in adults. And the evidence for the children seems to be not perfect, but more compelling in terms of actually doing things between, say, I don't know, three, four to 12 years of age. So if you sort of go in and do certain things, whether it's an individual therapy or whether it's group or whether it's very enhanced or whether it's sort of once a week, nevertheless, you you know, you, you've got sort of better outcomes. Obviously, different countries, and this is, I suppose, the rub of the matter here, because different countries have different health systems, different social care systems and so on. And most of those um, studies have um, been carried out in, say, Australia or the United States, where their system is not quite wrapped around as it is here, where, you know, even without having anything else, you'll have the NHS, which will support you in, in a number of ways, even sometimes, you know, not as well as you might want, but nevertheless, a lot better, perhaps, than if you, you know, you don't have sort of um, insurance or something. Um, so from that point of view, um, yes, the evidence is that if you do some, you know, things whilst the, the child is still young, um, and actually early intervention could be up to age 18 or so, you know, so even if you haven't started, you really need to start at some point. So you're likely to have better outcomes. It's not perfect research, smaller studies than, you know, we would like to sort of give the definitive answer. And for the first time in the UK, because there have been studies for uh, these kinds of approaches, like, uh, you know, we've, we've heard Rebecca mention, um, for the general population, these kind of general sort of groups that actually uh, the former Prime Minister Cameron uh, said that every parent, you know, should go on. But for the first time now, we've got the opportunity that we're doing this trial. Now, we don't know the results yet. We're sort of midway. But um, uh, the we are offering an early intervention, actually really early, in the kind of way that um, you would consider it in the um, population without uh, intellectual learning disabilities. Um, and of course, some of the, you know, the children that we see will have comorbidities like we heard, others may DHD and so on. Others may have just severe learning disability. We're looking at a group that's quite a sort of, you know, um, sort of perhaps um, a subgroup of all the children with learning disabilities. And I think we are putting them in the map because there is a drive. I mean, the guideline, for example, and for those kind of colleagues, practitioners, et cetera, who like to look it up is guideline number 11 from NICE. But the guideline <coughs> uh, 
recommends the groups, but it cannot actually say they must happen because, you know, in um, the kind of language that's being used when you haven't got the definitive evidence, you talk about, you don't recommend, but you can say it, it, they should be considered. So I think um, if uh, nothing else, it's kind of an area that is, um, you know, the, the funders, for example, are much more willing to invest money to find out the, the answers. And I think definitely when we talk about the health or mental health of children, we absolutely must consider the health uh, or mental health of the children with disabilities and of course learning disabilities are that because they usually come sort of you know way low in the sort of order of the problems that you need to address as a health and social care service so we you know it's one in seven children we've got you know, there's compelling evidence from 19 the 1970s to now that these children where there is a brain disorder of any kind will have more behavioral difficulties, whichever way we sort of think about it. So clearly it is a significant issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and there's a, uh, important themes that Rebecca and uh, Angela are mentioning just to summarize. One is lifespan. So it's not just about early intervention, as Angela is mentioning. For example, transition points are really important, mm -hmm. particularly primary to secondary school. That's a big transition point where, where getting the education environment support and uh, right is really important for the young person. The second very important transition point, which despite uh, lots and lots of years of talking about it, is transition into adulthood. Uh, and that includes um, young people with and without an intellectual disability and other mental health and behavioral difficulties. But even in children in the correct environment, such as a special school, are transitioning into adulthood, uh, that could be an, a critical period to, uh, for intervention to ensure their independence and everyday life tasks and their mental health well-being. Uh, as we know um, uh, by the reports, what, what, what the government and quite rightly everyone's trying to do is uh, avoid um, long-term residential uh, care and settings, uh, and that needs thinking about across across the age group and across the lifespan. And children with intellectual disabilities uh, have a higher prevalence of physical problems. Uh, for example, epilepsy is quite common in children with autism and intellectual disability. And making sure GPs are thinking about how to serve this vulnerable population with, for example, annual checks and, and thinking about um, uh, reviewing, uh, actively reviewing medication uh, because this group has a higher morbidity and mortality, sadly. Um, so a lot more needs to be done, a lot more research, but it's, it's, it's um, exciting that this is an area of importance now. Um, and as, just as we wrap up, if I could go back to you, Rebecca. Um, it sounds like your experience here, at least initially, was quite difficult. And I just wonder, you know, at that first point of, of contact, when you first talked to... Um, your your GP practice. Do you have any advice for for people, um, for GPs, you know, about how to support parents at that point? I think it's kind of what I stipulated earlier that if we're admitting we can't cope and we're asking for help, then we're pretty much at rock bottom, and we do need it. Um, you know, it's it's emotionally embarrassing. It, it's just you know to admit that you can't parent your own child. You know, you can't get your child out of the home and. And I just think that, 
you know, reassurance and just listen, listen and do what you can. Um, I know, obviously, across the country, hands are tied and everything's different. But either way, you know, that person needs reassurance that actually it, it's not just they're not on their own. They're not the only parent and they're not they're not doing anything wrong. You know, they need help. It, it's that because for a parent to admit they need help, they really need help. Because no mum, especially a mum, is going to admit that they cannot cope and look after their own child. And that's, that's the biggest one for me. You've been listening to Angela Hasiotis, Michael Absud and Rebecca talk about their practice article, Managing Challenging Behaviour in Children with Possible Learning Disability. That's now available on bmj.com and I'll link to it from the podcast text. Whilst you're having a look there, maybe you could rate or review us. It's a small thing, but it really helps us stay on the iTunes charts, which helps other people to find us. It also lets us know that you'll enjoy the content and make sure that we'll make some more. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with research on stroke reduction. Is it treatment or prevention that's helping? We'll also be looking at funding of patient groups. Who's paying and are they transparent about it? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.